This is Howard Anderson, Managing Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today we're talking with Dr. Bill Braithwaite, Chief Medical Officer for Anacam, Inc. Dr. Braithwaite is widely known as Dr. HIPAA for his seven years as a senior advisor at HHS when he played a major role in drafting the HIPAA Administrative Simplification Provisions. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Braithwaite. You're quite welcome. Dr. Braithwaite, based on your extensive experience writing regulations and then explaining to lots of people how to comply, Let's go over what you like and what you don't like about the pending regulations to carry out the High Tech Act. First of all, do you think the financial incentives for hospitals and physicians to use electronic health records are fundamentally a good idea and will prove successful in the long run? First of all, it's important to understand what the intent is here, uh, and only when you understand the intent can you get a sense for whether these incentives are a good idea or not. The problem is that we are still practicing medicine like we did uh, 4,200 years ago. We are still putting a clinician, decision maker, and a patient in a room, and they're both interacting from memory. The complexity of the human physiology and the complexity of medical knowledge is to the point now where we can't do that anymore without hurting people accidentally. In fact, we've known for well over a decade that we're killing 100,000 people by accident, avoidable accidents in hospitals every year, and to me, that's just unacceptable. To fix this problem, we need to put a whole package in place. We have to change the way we practice medicine. Clinical decisions, whether the decisions are made by by a clinician, decision maker, or by a patient, those have to be supported with electronic technology that starts off with an electronic health record system, the electronic health record system has to contain clinical decision support software, and that in turn has to be supported by computable health information exchange. If you put those things together to allow the decision makers to make better decisions, we can save a lot of lives and save a lot of money. This requires a great deal in changing the way we practice medicine. So we look back at the financial incentives you asked about, and if you add up all the numbers, what you end up with is the federal government reimbursing clinicians and hospitals for about what it costs to buy the electronic health record systems themselves. What's not reimbursed is the cost of the training required, the, ch- the cost and the hassle of change, that is the process reengineering that's necessary for the practice of medicine to take advantage of these things, and the learning time and lack of experience that will take a great deal of time for these things to come together. It's been estimated that clinicians will lose about 50% of their productive time in their first year, after which, of course, they will become more uh, productive and be able to see more patients. And once they see the patients and be able to make better decisions, they won't have to see the patients coming back (laughs) because uh, they won't make so many mistakes. So the combination of these things says, yes, the financial incentive is important, it's necessary. Whether it's good enough uh, will depend, actually, on how it gets implemented, I think, given all of these other uh, barriers that are still in place and have to be pulled down before it's successful. Now, high-tech doesn't mandate that anyone participate in the incentives, but those physician offices and hospitals that have not made meaningful use of record systems by the end of 2014 will see a series of escalating cuts in their reimbursement 
for treating Medicare patients kicking in in 2015. Do you think that's a powerful incentive? Well, from my perspective, it's a powerful incentive. You know, we'll pay for your computer software and hardware, and if you don't implement it and prove to us that you've implemented in a way that's going to improve the outcome of your clinical decisions, we're going to start uh, decreasing the amount of money we pay you for what you do for uh, Medicare and Medicaid uh, patients. I think that's pretty powerful. I think the question is not the power of it. It's the speed and the difficulty of doing this. Um, I worry that although the amount of money is there, the incentives are there, that the demand for proof so quickly for so many things is going to force some people to give up. They're going to start retiring instead of going through all of this hassle. You can imagine the, the middle-aged to older physicians saying, oh, my God, I've got, to, I've got to not only install these computers, I've got to select them, I've got to buy them, I've got to spend a lot of time learning how to use them, and then I have to prove to the federal government that I'm using them in a certain way in order to get reimbursed for all the money I've put out for this. I worry that this is going to be a disincentive uh, if it's not done in a sort of clinician-friendly, soft rollout. So the incentives are there, but the punishment isn't so bad that they kind of give up before they get to the point where they can uh, practice with information technology at their side, helping them make better clinical decisions. So you agree with a lot of organizations that commented on a meaningful use rule uh, that uh, asked for the timeline for meeting the criteria to be a little less aggressive. Uh, how optimistic are you that regulators will take that advice into heart and uh, change the timeline in light of all the comments they received? Well, you know, the, the regulators are under the influence of the law, and the law lays these timelines down in black and white. It's going to be very, very difficult for them to change the timeline. And I, I understand where it came from. Healthcare has been very reluctant to change. And this is a point in time where we really have to change the way we practice medicine. We really have to integrate electronic health information technology right into the very core of how we practice medicine and how we make clinical decisions. And so having an aggressive timeline makes people pay attention, and I think that's important. But I also think that it has to be humanely applied, and I think the regulators do have some flexibility in terms of saying, well, by this point in time, instead of saying you have to do 100% of this by this date or we're going to cut you off, you can say, all right, you've got to have uh, 50% of it done by now, and we'll give you some slack, and 80% done the next year, and sort of work it to the point where people can actually keep up with this aggressive timeline. Um, they might not be able to do it all as commanded by the law in the first year or two, but they can get enough done that they're clearly on the path. And once on the path, it's going to be pretty hard to turn back and give it all up because uh, I know you've probably talked to clinicians. Once they've had this computing support to their clinical decision-making and they've solved a lot of the problems of getting these things implemented and integrated, they, they will scream bloody murder if you turn around and say, well, we're going to take it away. So it's a matter of... Uh, getting it in there in a way that uh, allows people to adapt and get used to it so they continue to use it and to increase their use of it rather than giving up 
uh, in a short period of time. The Healthcare Information and Management System Society and some others uh, have said that the meaningful use rule lacks sufficient detail on data security measures and privacy measures. Do you think that rule as well as the rule on standards for certified EHRs are too vague in general, but especially when it comes to security and privacy? Uh, Definitely. I I think they're they're way too vague. You know, it's kind of strange in a way. I mean, as as I've said, the whole process of implementing meaningful use of information technology depends on the secure exchange of computable health information. This is the underpinning to the clinical decision support. If patients won't allow their information to be exchanged electronically and doctors won't contribute their information on patients electronically to be shared because they don't trust the system, because it's not being well protected enough to preserve the confidentiality and integrity, uh, the whole system is going to fall on its face. It's just not going to do what... uh, a meaningful use is intended to do. So we're in this situation, particularly with privacy and security, where we're gathering information and we're exchanging it electronically, which, as any, anyone in the security field understands, increases the risks that somebody is going to use it or disclose it inappropriately, which means you need stronger authentication of the users and you have to control the costs and the risks in this process of building stronger authentication and stronger security. There, there are standards on the books from, from HITSPEED that have actually been adopted by the Secretary, and federal agencies are, in fact, required to follow these adopted standards. But those standards aren't the ones that were uh, put into the uh, interim final rule from the Office of the National Coordinator. The, the rules left a lot of slack. It said, okay, you can do this or you can do that, and we might raise it in the future, but they're so vague and so slack in terms of the requirements that people aren't sure what's going to happen. And if they're not sure what's going to be required, they're not going to do anything. That's We learned that from HIPAA, where by law you had to use a certain set of standards, and people said, well, you know, show me the punishment. Show me what I'm going to lose if I don't do it. I'll pay the $100 fine rather than going to all the effort of implementing these, these new standards. So I think they really are going to have to build a stronger, more specific set of standards, particularly for privacy and security. The interim final rule that was point, uh, published pointed out specifically that the capabilities of qualified electronic health record systems set the floor, but they didn't set the floor for the capabilities re- required for privacy and security. They referred back to these sort of general things. Oh, yeah, you need uh, certain kinds of encryption and you need certain kinds of authentication, but no specifics. So I look at a specific situation that I deal with as the chief medical officer of Anacam all the time, which is there's a difference from a clinician uh, doing electronic prescribing, for example, from within a medical environment where they're surrounded by other clinicians, they're in a controlled environment, and people know who's supposed to have access to that machine and what they're supposed to be able to do with it. That's different than when the doctor calls in from home. Well, that's an unsecured location. Is this doctor really who he says he is? Is the doctor qualified to do this sort of prescribing electronically? And what do we do to make sure that this remote access is truly being done by the person who's authorized to do this particular function? That requires strong or second-factor authentication, which isn't anywhere 
in the rules as a requirement. So people are just going to use username and passwords until the first time we have a major breach based on some hacker coming in remotely or stealing a password or stealing a laptop and finding the passwords attached to it uh, in a sticky note. Those kinds of things have to be dealt with up front or we're going to have a major problem. And if we lose the trust of the clinicians and the patients, again, um, meaningful use is not going to uh, go forward very quickly. Well, based on your HIPAA experience, um, are you optimistic that the regulators will indeed uh, continue to fine-tune and add details to these final high-tech regs, which are due out toward the end of spring? I have no doubt that they will. I think they've gotten a lot of feedback about what was missing and what was too vague and what they should be doing about it. But I worry that the federal government uh, takes a very long time to change these kinds of things and come up with specificity in their rulemaking. Uh, part of the problem is that they don't want to be seen as partial to a particular vendor or subset of vendors or a particular aspect. Uh, they've spent a lot of time writing uh, standards and rules and regulations in such a way that the architecture of how the nationwide health information network is to be implemented, for example, is architecturally neutral. Well, I mean, that leaves so much to be desired. They're, just, they're not making the kinds of decisions that make people feel confident that they can go ahead and build the systems using the technology and the standards that have been adopted so that they will not fail and they will be able to communicate with other people uh, effectively, cost-effectively, and securely. It's not the same as setting regulations for independent um, vendors to build a product. These are products that have to interact. They have to interact securely. They have to use the same mechanisms for connectivity, for security, for authentication, or the whole system won't work. So I think they need to get a lot more specific about these rules, and I worry that the federal government is going to be able to make the hard decisions necessary to put the rules into place in such a way that the interoperability is, uh, is secure and uh, able to be implemented quickly and cost-effectively by the vendors that are out there. In the meantime, what advice would you offer uh, hospitals and clinics preparing to participate in the EHR incentive program regarding the kinds of factors they should be considering now to make sure the clinical data they're moving online will stay secure? Well, I think uh, the first message is if you haven't started already, uh, you need to start yesterday. It's a long and difficult process. Um, you have to learn about what data you have, what data you need, what information systems you have, what the information systems are out there, and what kinds of budgets you can afford, even given your expectation that it will be reimbursed by Medicare and Medicaid. Um, this is a long and difficult and arduous process. It has to be started now or you'll be way behind. So that's, that's obviously the first thing. The second thing is think about the, the vision, the goal, that this is not another system that you implement and the doctor scribbles a note to the nurse and the nurse does it, or they scribble a note to the lab and the lab does it. This is something that won't work unless the doctor does it. It won't work unless the patient does it. You've got to provide direct access to the decision makers in the process of making those decisions fully supporting those decisions, or it's going to fail. Its purpose is to be there for the decision maker 
And if you implement it in such a way that the decision maker is isolated from that interaction, then it's not going to work. So think about that and seriously look at what sorts of process reengineering and education is going to be necessary for whatever system you end up buying and implementing uh, to make this rather dramatic change in the way medicine is practiced both in the clinical environment and in the hospitals. I think if you have that sort of larger view of the, of the vision and you start from the vision and work down as you work from the bottom up gathering information about what data is necessary and what information systems are available uh, to meet the needs of your particular institution, that you will be closer to success than uh, any other method. Well, great. Thanks, Dr. Braithwaite. We've been speaking today with Bill Braithwaite of Anacam. This is Howard Anderson of Information Security Media Group. Thanks a lot for listening.